We come now to the final section of the epilogue of 2 Samuel. Now remember, I've told you that the epilogue began in 2 Samuel 21. It's comprised of essentially six sections. Section 1, as you might recall, parallels with section 6. This is section 6. Now the common thread in both sections is that they describe an account of God's wrath because of sin. That's the parallel. Wrath that came upon the land on a previous occasion. You can see it at the beginning of 2 Samuel 21. And wrath that would come on the land in light of Israel's sin and in light of David's sin. We'll see why that is. We'll see what's going on as we get into the text. And we're going to jump right into the text this morning. So we begin in 2 Samuel 24, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Again, the anger of the Lord, or Yahweh, was aroused against Israel. And he moved David against them to say, Go and number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. So we here see at the beginning of this verse that word again. You say, well, what was the previous time? It seems to pick up from another time. When was the previous time in which Yahweh was angry with Israel? This may be referring back to 2 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 14. Seeing as the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel for a wrong that needed to be made right. And you could listen to my teaching on the message or read the text to kind of get an idea of what was going on there. Now here we know, this is important, I want you to see this right away, notice this, here we see that the anger of the Lord, notice Lord is in caps, the anger of Yahweh, that's the covenant name of God, the self-existent God of the universe, I am that I am, Yahweh, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, please note that, that's important, lest you misinterpret everything that comes a little bit later on in this story, I'll get back to that in a moment. But if you were to say, why exactly was Yahweh angered with Israel at this point? We don't know exactly. We're not told exactly. It could be in light of the rebellion of Absalom, and many of the people of Israel joined with Absalom, and now there's still people who are with David, but not really with David. That could be part of it. It could be for the rebellion of Sheba, and the people that joined in that rebellion. You're like, wow, there was a lot of rebellions that went on. Yes, David was king, but there were rebellions that went on during his ruling and reigning. It could have been that there might have been some sense of pride that the people had in the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel had expanded. The military conquests that they had undertaken were successful and maybe there was a great sense of pride in which the people were not giving to Yahweh the glory that He deserved. Maybe they were attributing the glory to something or someone else. So those are just possibilities. We're not told exactly, but what I can say is this. There was, doubtless, to use language from Gordon Ketty, some deepening problem of national backsliding which the Lord intended to correct. God is patient. God is always patient. God is slow to wrath. But whatever the sin was, it continued on, it was unrepented of, and the time came for punishment. So make no mistake, you're reading it now, and it wasn't like God flew off the handle. It wasn't like God has a short fuse. God does not have a short fuse. He is slow to anger. But if sin does not go repented of, especially in the context of a nation, and a covenant nation like Israel at this point, God, to be true to His covenant promises, in Deuteronomy 28, for instance, would bring punishment upon the land. So here, we see that there is a sin of Israel, and that judgment comes, note this, because this is going to be important, not simply 
as a result of David's sin, but as a result of Israel's sin as well. That's important. So now, we still, looking in verse 1, we see that in God's sovereign, sinless, superintending of history, notice the text, He moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. And that could take you by surprise. God is going to judge Israel, but He's going to do it through David. And He's going to do it through David's sin. Now, this is important to understand that when you go through the Scriptures, that's not a foreign concept to the Scriptures. We see this kind of thing in many places. The Scripture provides us with numerous examples where the independent, volitional acts of men are sinlessly superintended by God. Just to give you one example, and there could be so many examples that I can give you. Take, for instance, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 17, where Isaiah prophesied that the Lord, Yahweh, will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your father's house. Assyria was coming of their own volition. They were conquering nations. They were going to do that. They wanted to do that. But they couldn't escape the sovereign God of the universe who sinlessly superintends even the sinful acts of men and women. Part of the mystery of how God exercises His sovereignty sinlessly. But make no mistake... He exercises His sovereignty sinlessly. Now what takes you by surprise in this text is you're like, wait, so He's going to use David? David is going to be the instrument through which the judgment is going to come? Yes. And I think part of the reason for that is seen a little bit later on in this text. But how are we to understand the statement here about God's moving David against them to number Israel? I want to make first a couple of things very clear. Please note that God did not make David sin. That is thoroughly clear. God cannot be tempted with evil. Neither does God Himself tempt anyone. James chapter 1, verse 13. James chapter 1, verse 14 goes on to say, rather each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There we're getting a little bit more into what was going on in this situation. But make it to be clear, God did not put sin in David. Rather, God, knowing the sinful desires of David's heart, and knowing that he was going to bring judgment upon Israel for Israel's sin, he allowed, permitted, Satan to tempt David. You see that when you look at the parallel account. There's a parallel account of this story in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21. In 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, we're told, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So you say, okay, how did God, according to 2 Samuel 24, 1, how did God move David? And then how does that jive with Satan moving, moving David? Is there a distinction between the two? And doubtless there is a distinction between the two. God moved David in that the sovereign God of the universe permitted and allowed as part of his sovereign and eternal plan to allow Satan to tempt David so as to bring to the surface David's sinful desire that was already in his heart and thereby he might bring judgment upon a sinful and unrepentant people. That's how they coalesce. God is sovereign and God is sinless 
And in God's sovereignty of all things, the Scripture does not hide from this. I'll give you a few examples as we go on. The Scripture does not hide from the superlative nature of God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over the weather. He's sovereign over breaths that we take and how many heartbeats that we have. He is sovereign over Satan. Remember, Satan couldn't even get to Job because there was a hedge around him. How did Satan eventually get to Job? It was when God removed that hedge. He's sovereign over demons. He's sovereign over evil spirits. He's sovereign over all in this Scripture does not hide from that point, and neither should a Christian. As long as you are rooted in the reality that he is sinless, Scripture tells us he is light in whom there is no darkness at all. No darkness. There's no shadow of turning with him. His goodness is immutable. And just as God used the volitional evil of, say, for instance, Joseph's brothers. Remember Joseph speaking to his brothers in Genesis 50? Essentially saying to them, what you did, you did it for evil. But God meant it for good. So God can use the sinfulness of even Satan to bring about his purposes. And oftentimes, to bring about good, even despite evil being done. Greatest example of that being the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I do want to stop here for a moment because I think there's a word of instruction and encouragement for saints. I do not want you to make the mistake of thinking that this theology is like the furniture that, say, your aunt had in her living room. Now, some of you might know what I'm talking about. It might not have been your aunt. It could be your grandparent. It might be you. And if it's you, I don't mean to offend you at all. But I know that when I was growing up, uh, a dear aunt that many of you know, she's, she's been here before, and she's given testimony uh, right over there, right where um, Karen and my cousin uh, Josephine is sitting. She gave testimony of how she was healed from lung cancer, and she attributed that, at least in large measure, to the prayers of this local church. She's a dear aunt. She loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And we used to go upstate and spend time with her when uh, I was younger. But one of the places that you could not really enjoy too much in her house was the living room. Because when you went into the house, now she was super hospitable, she'd have us over, but in the living room, it was one of those rooms, and you know the kind of room that this is, where there's the couch, and then there's the chair, or there's other couches, but what do they have over it? Plastic, that's right, yep. And not just like, you know, the thick plastic, which was like a warning, like, you do not go near this, we are keeping this. So it looks nice. Like, wow, this is nice furniture. It's pretty, but it's not really useful. If I'm tired, I'm not going to lay on it. If I'm fatigued, I'm not going to sit on it. It's just kind of there, and I'm happy it's there, but it's of no real use to me. Don't make the mistake of thinking this theology is like that. This theology of God's sovereignty, sovereignly, sinlessly superintending all that goes on in this world, even the acts of Satan and demons, that is not no-use theology to you. That's of tremendous benefit to you. Now, here's just a couple of ways in which that is. First, if I'm going to kind of draw it out from the text and give you examples from other texts, I would say first, this theology within the context of this narrative provides additional motivation to stay away from evil. There's so many reasons in the scripture to stay away from evil. Right? We, don't want to, we don't want to dishonor God. We don't want to bring any repute upon His name. We don't want to bear the scars that come with sin. We don't want to sow and then reap from our sin. There's so many reasons not sin. We don't want to hurt others and so on. But here's another reason. We want to stay away from evil because we don't want to make ourselves vulnerable to the wiles of Satan. Now, similar examples can be found in other places as well. An evil king like Ahab an evil king like Ahab, was brought to his death 
Because a lying spirit, remember that mysterious um, event that you see in the book of Kings when there's a, 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 a spirit that says, I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And he goes, and he couldn't do it without the sovereignty of God. And he goes and he becomes a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets telling Ahab, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper. And Ahab's like, that's what I like. He didn't like the, the truth that the true prophet of God was giving him, but he liked the words of the false prophets and he was brought to his death. His unrepentant evil put him in a situation where he became attuned to the lies. He wanted to hear lies and he got lies and that ended up leading to his death. In the Old Testament context of 1 Samuel, we see that Saul's repeated rebellion, 1 Samuel 13, 1 Samuel 15, led to God ripping away the kingdom from him, choosing a man that was better than him and the Spirit of God comes upon David in 1 Samuel 16. But not only does the Spirit of God come upon David in 1 Samuel 16, but the Spirit of God having departed from Saul, well then, a distressing spirit from Yahweh comes upon Saul. And so part of Saul's chastisement for his rebellion, it put him in a position where he would even be in a position where there was a distressing spirit from God troubling him. 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 and verse 23. In the New Testament, Peter asked Ananias, Right? Ananias, who wanted credit for something he didn't really do. He wanted to look like he had given all the proceeds of a piece of land that was sold. So he lied when he hadn't really given all the proceeds of the land. Peter told him it was yours to do whatever you wanted with it. Like you didn't have to give it all. You could have just been honest about it, essentially. And we're told that Peter told him, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie against the Holy Spirit? Now, getting into a little bit, even a little bit more of a New Testament context, if somebody is unrepentant in a local church context, part of the prescription for that local church is to practice church discipline. You go look at 1 Corinthians 5. If somebody is in unrepentant sexual immorality, if somebody is unrepentant and given to drunkenness or covetousness or some sin, a church is mandated by the Word of God to exercise church discipline, meaning telling that one, after going through the loving steps outlined in a place like Matthew 18, that if they do not repent, they cannot stay in the fellowship. And what happens when you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is that such a one is to be essentially removed from the fellowship. But the language there in 1 Corinthians 5 is pretty strong. Handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh in the hopes essentially that their soul might be saved. So there's a redemptive hope in church discipline. But again, the idea, meaning, the idea being when you are unrepentant in, in sin... You make yourself, in one way or another, more vulnerable to the wiles of the enemy. To be sure, if you're a Christian, if you're saved and washed by the blood of Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake. But you nonetheless make yourself more vulnerable to the wiles of Satan and the destruction that comes with it. I mean, we're going to see, uh, alongside of the text in 2 Samuel 24, how Satan's devices can be used as a means of chastisement or judgment, and it ought to provide us with additional motivation to avoid evil. Now, second, and I'm just going to kind of give you two points and give you a summary thought here. Second, the theology that Satan's schemes cannot escape the sovereignty of God is a reminder that Satan's schemes can even be used for good in the life of a believer. Perhaps the best example of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Remember there, the Apostle Paul said in verse 7 of that chapter that lest I be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, 
Now remember, he had such revelations that he was even taken up to heaven. Right? And he saw things that were unlawful to be uttered. Like this man was given revelation of God's will. He was a communicant of divine revelation. He saw things like that. But notice what he says here. He says, I'll kind of read it again, lest I should be exalted above measure. Essentially, lest I become prideful. By the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. What was the thorn in the flesh? Well, he describes it. He goes on and he says, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now maybe that was some false teacher who was kind of like the head honcho of the false teachers in Corinth who was causing him trouble, maybe possessed by an evil spirit or something like that. We don't know the exact details, but nonetheless, he had a thorn in the flesh. It was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. He goes on and he says, lest I be exalted above measure. Now you know, if you're familiar with this chapter, you know that Paul knows who's in charge. Because what does he do? He said that he pleaded with the Lord to remove that thorn. Pleaded with the Lord three times. Why is he doing that? Because he knows the Lord is in charge. You could remove this thorn in the flesh, this messenger of Satan. I'm going to God. I know that God is sovereignly, sinlessly superintending even this buffeting that's happening to me. But he saw God's good purpose in it. That God was using it to keep him humble so that he would not become prideful. And you remember the words that were told to him? He was basically told no as far as his request for the thorns removal, at least in that time. But the Lord told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So the thorn, Paul, at least at that time, the thorn will stay. But the grace will keep coming. And the grace will be sufficient. So Paul was on the receiving end of God using even Satan and a messenger of Satan to be a means to his sanctification. Now as was the case with Job, Satan can only do what he was permitted to do. Such was the case with Paul. Even as it is with every believer. Do you know that? It's a little bit pastoral counseling for you in this moment. Do you live, maybe because of some church background that you had, right? do you live with a constant fear of Satan? Do you? Uh, do, do, you uh, do, do you engage with Satan? Do you believe you do? Engage with conversations privately and personally in your home and you think you're talking to Satan and you think you're kind of casting him out of this room and that room and you don't even know who you're speaking to exactly and you could imagine that if there are evil spirits watching you, they're saying, really? This guy's walking around this room and that room and he thinks he's casting out Satan. Satan's not even over there. Satan's over there. He's actually talking to himself. Do you live with this kind of fear? Son or daughter of God, you need not live with that kind of fear. Do you believe, Romans 8.28, that God will cause all things to work together for your good? That includes even the buffeting that in some way, shape, or form comes your way via Satan. Do you believe, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, that the Lord is faithful who will guard you and establish you against the evil one? You need not fear. He is your shield. Now, you don't want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. You don't want to be ignorant of his deceptions. And you want to resist the evil one. But when you look at 1 Peter 5, how do you resist the evil one? It's by essentially standing steadfast, firm in the faith. You, standing firm in the faith, trusting God, who is ultimately your shield, and at times raising the shield of faith, bearing the sword of the Spirit well, that you are ultimately protected 
And that if God allows something into your life, He'll use it in some way, shape, or form. Even if you don't immediately understand how, He'll use it for your good and your sanctification. But nonetheless, 2 Samuel 24 is a good reminder to us, let's do what we can to not make ourselves vulnerable to His wiles. You being here and under the teaching of the Word of God, celebrating the Lord's Supper, singing to God corporately, and so on, it's part of the way you do that. Well, back to the text. So the king, and we'll see this in... Verse 2, so the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Essentially from the north to the south. All the territory, you cover it all and count the people that I may know the number of the people. That brings us to verses 3 and 4 where we see the response of Joab. And Joab said to the king, now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it, but why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Now, if you don't know Joab, let me tell you a little something about Joab. Joab is not exactly known for his moral compass. Joab was not a man, when you go through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, where you think, you know, that guy, he had a really sensitive conscience. Not Joab, trust me, just listen to the messages and you'll see why. There is the enigma that is this man, Joab, but right here in this moment, he's caught something. He he knows something's wrong. You see it implied here in the text. Like, David, why are you doing this thing? Like, you don't have to do this thing. Why are you doing this thing? You see it even more clearly when you look in the parallel account in 1 Chronicles 21. In that account, Joab tells David, why should he, speaking of David, speaking of the king, be a cause of guilt in Israel? He got it. And this is Joab, again, he's not Mr. Moral Compass, he's not Mr. Sensitive Conscience, but yet he's saying, something's wrong with this, David. Why should you be a cause of guilt in Israel? Why are you going to do this thing? I do want to say something that I think is worth noting. Joab clearly knew David's census was wrong. To his credit, though, look how he approached the king. He approached him with respect. I think that's just worth noting. It's a good reminder for Christians that if you do see a brother or sister overtaken by a trespass, to use language from Galatians 6.1, that you have a manner that you are supposed to address them in a gentle way. That's how you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to do it in a a, a kind way, a gentle way. That doesn't mean you're not supposed to be truthful, but you're supposed to do it in a right way. To Joab's credit, he's approaching the king in the right way here. And he is manifesting, I think, a quality that ought to be found in faithful friends. A willingness to confront someone even though it's going to be awkward. He's doing that here. And apparently, notice this, he wasn't alone. The captains of the army shared his concern. Notice, we're told that the king's word prevailed against Joab and the captains of the army. That should mean a little bit more to us given what we just studied in 2 Samuel 23. That there were these mighty men, these men of valor. So it's not just Joab, who's been very questionable throughout the study of First and Second Samuel, but you have these mighty men, these captains, and they're with Joab saying, why are you going to do this? Don't do this. Nonetheless, the king's word prevailed. The king's word prevailed. This was important. This was, I would say, a red light. This wasn't a flashing yellow light. This wasn't a dark yellow light to kind of take the metaphor even further. This wasn't proceed with caution, David. Just make sure you handle this wisely. This was clearly a stop sign. 
It's like Joab and the other warriors were holding up stop signs. Like, are you sure you want to do this? Don't do this. They're holding up stop signs. And interestingly, even if we put Joab aside, I think we could assume the other captains, um, more likely fitting the description of righteous men, would be like those David himself wrote of in Psalm 141, verse 5, when David said, Let the righteous strike me. It shall be kindness. What does he mean by that? He goes on and explains it by the parallelism in the next part of the verse. And let him rebuke me. Ah, that's what he means. Let the righteous strike me. It will be kindness. Let him rebuke me. It shall be as excellent oil. Oil flowing from my head. Let my head not refuse it. It's reminiscent to me of uh, Proverbs 27, verse 6, which, which says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Timely rebukes can come from righteous friends. And timely rebukes can even come from you know, shrewd and seemingly self-interested ones like Joab. So some bit of pastoral instruction to you, be on the lookout for those kind of rebukes. Because when you actually have somebody in your life who says, mm, this is wrong. Like honestly, I'm going to be the one to tell you, even if nobody's told you this, that's actually wrong. You cannot do that. That's sin. You want to receive it as kindness. That's what it is. If it's accurate, and it should be communicated in love and with respect, but nonetheless, it's kindness. True friends, or timely rebukes from a Joab equivalent, they are threats to your sin. And you want to welcome them. They are, you could say, blessed speed bumps. They are off-ramps on the road to disobedience, right? David is on the road to disobedience here. And he's got Joab and the captains being essentially off-ramps. Want to get off this road? Like You're on it. You haven't got there yet. Let's get off. They're speed bumps. They're blessed off-ramps. You want to say, I need this. And I'll tell you, you need this. I need this. You want to welcome the brother who says to you, that's no excuse. You shouldn't be doing that. You want to welcome the sister who says to you, you know, you've crafted some very carefully laid out excuses, but at the end of the day, they're excuses that do not excuse the sin that you are doing and pursuing. You want to welcome that. According to the Scripture, it's kindness. And I know, we, we live in a day where biblically backed, well-reasoned, respectfully deployed correction could be considered by some hate speech. You know, that's violence. You're telling me I'm sinning against God, that's hate. No, it's kindness. That's violence. No, it's an act of love as opposed to hate. And I would encourage you, our attitude should not be to just tolerate such blows. Per David, what he wrote in Psalm 141, interesting to think, right? Like, I don't know when David wrote Psalm 141, but it's interesting to think that you can know these truths if he wrote it before. Like, you can know these truths, and you've been there. You've been there where you know certain truths, and you're like, I know the, I, I know the truth of what I should do right now. I know what they're doing, and it's right, but nonetheless... You don't heed it in that moment. So if he wrote Psalm 141 before, then that's a dynamic that plays out here. If he wrote it after, then it's part of his instruction, I would say, to ones like you and I to say, don't make the mistake that I did in 2 Samuel 24. See timely rebukes as kindness. As kindness. One more thought about that. If you look in Hebrews chapter 3, we are told that we are to exhort each other each day as long as it's called today so that none of us 
might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There's no one in this room who is above such exhortations. We all need it. We all need it. I want to get to the, the question that uh, eventually you, you run into. And you probably have already thought about it. And if you study this uh, chapter, you'll run into it over and over again. Why was the census sin? Right? That's the question. What's the problem? Israel has had a census before, for instance, in Numbers chapter 1. Why was this census sin? Here are some possibilities. The census was taken by the command of David, but not the command of God. When you look in Numbers chapter 1, for instance, verses 1 and 2, we see that the Lord, or Yahweh, spoke to Moses. You go on a little bit further, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of Israel. So who initiated the census? The true king of Israel. The king of Israel, in later history when there would be kings in Israel, was to function as a kind of vice-regent. Who was the true king? Who counted the people? To whom did the people belong? The people belonged to Yahweh. They didn't belong to David. They were Yahweh's to count, not David's to count. So that's probably part of what's going on here. This wasn't commanded by Yahweh. Second, the Jewish historian Josephus, um, in line with other Jewish writers from before, uh, maintained that David did not instruct the census to be accompanied by the collection of a half-shekel tax on individuals 20 years of age and older, per the instructions that are found in Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. Very interestingly, according to Exodus 30, verse 12, um, so you see in verses 11 through 16, but in verse 12 we're told that when the census was taken, that there was to be a half-shekel tax, if you will, that functioned as a kind of ransom for every man as unto the Lord, so that there would be no plague when the numbering took place. That might have been part of the equation. Not only did the Lord not command it, but then David pursued it, possibly, possibly, without doing it in the way that Yahweh prescribed. Flashback to 2 Samuel 6, and you'll be reminded, you don't want to do things in the way that Yahweh does not prescribe. Uh, prescribe. Third, and I think this is very important to notice, the words of Joab not only suggest that Joab and the captains of the army knew David was wrong, but that his motives were off as well. Look again, look at verse 3. Look at Joab's words in verse 3. Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my Lord the King see it, but why does my Lord the King desire this thing? It appears that David's taking of a census, which by the way, and this is important to note, David taking the census in this historical context was about military conscription. Think draft. Like that's why you were doing the census. You weren't just numbering all the people in the land. You were saying 20 years and older, we're looking for people to draft into the army. So this appears to have been an attempt to build the army greater and bigger, and this might be part of the problem. As though Israel's success depended on numbers and not on Yahweh. Yahweh would take care of the numbers. Yahweh promised that He would make the nation of Israel like the sand of the seashore. But numbers would not carry the day against enemy nations. Only Yahweh could do that. And if that's what's going on here, and David's act is a result of misplaced trust and an unauthorized draft or conscription, I think Bill Arnold puts it well when he stated, David is acting like a typical ancient Near East king, Near Eastern king, instead of an Israelite king. That's an off-ramp for a message in itself. 
when I was preaching through the book of Judges, early on in teaching through the book, we saw the big problem that happened to Israel as they entered the promised land. They got Canaanized. They started acting like the Canaanites. Who were the Canaanites? They were the idolatrous people who lived in the land. And instead of being the people of God that they were called to be, and you look in the book of Judges and you see all the sad and morbid ways in which it plays out. Instead of being different than the world, they became just like the world. They became Canaanized. And David in this moment might be acting the part of an ancient Near Eastern king, acting like a Canaanite. And I just want to remind us, you always have to be wary when the people of God start acting like the world it usually leads to big problems. If you think like the world, if you talk like the world, you enjoy what the world enjoys, you're like, hey, there's really no difference between me and the world. I, we do the same things, we go to the same places, we enjoy the same things, but I'll tell you the one point of differentiation, I show up on a certain place on Sunday for a little while and they don't. But other than that, we are pretty much the same. Be warned. People of God are to look distinct from the world. The people of God are to look distinct from the world. But I think there's also more instruction here for us. I think so. Especially a church of the size that we are. We must not think that the success of a church is simply measured by the number of those in attendance or that the advancement of God's prerogatives can only be achieved by great numbers. I think that's important to remember. You know, if David's doing a military draft here because he's like, we need more numbers, we're going to build the army bigger, and we're going to voyage into more battles. Maybe he even wanted to take territory that God hadn't prescribed for him to take or so on. We don't know all the details, but apparently it seems like he thought he needed a military draft to do it. Numbers are going to equal success, or numbers are going to fan the flame of pride. These kind of thinkings, these kind of actions, this kind of playing out of whatever was going on in his mind. I think it's important for us to remember that more does not equal better. That much can be done through a few, and Yahweh is not restrained or propelled by either much or little. Conversely, by the way, pride is not to be taken in smallness. Right? Small church is better. (laughs) You don't want to take pride in the perceived benefits of either largeness or smallness. Essentially, they're equally inconsequential when compared with faithfulness. That's the variable. Faithfulness. Spirit-wrought faithfulness will produce spirit-wrought fruitfulness in God's time, according to God's will, and in God's way. A church is called to walk in truth and in love with confidence of the continued work of God's grace by His Word, by His Spirit, as opposed to something else, numbers or otherwise. Now that brings us to a bit of geography and the details of the census. Now for the purposes of time, I'm not going to go through the dynamics here of the geography that's laid out for us, but I do want to say something. I think, you can talk to me more about this later if you want, I think that the details that we find here are kind of like the appendix. You know, that appendage in your body, often esteemed as irrelevant, like don't really need it, you can live with it or without it, but there's a purpose to it. There's a purpose to the design of this geography as well. This geography is painting a picture. This geography is distinguishing certain territories from other territories. So, there may be a bit of details, and you're like, why all the details? But I want to tell you, like the appendix, some might seem and think it to be unnecessary, but it has a purpose according to God's design. If you had your appendix removed, don't worry. You're fine. I'm not trying to make you feel any kind of sense of fear. Um, 
But look at verses 5. I'm going to read through verse 9. And they crossed over the Jordan, and they camped in a rower on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of God and towards Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tathim Hadshi. They came to Dan Ja'an and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south of Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. Okay, let me just give you a few points here. If you were looking at a map, you would basically see that in a kind of counterclockwise way. Joab, going from Jerusalem, starts south. And then after starting south, he deals with the tribes on the east side of the Jordan. Transjordan, right? He's going over there. He's going to cover those who are on that side. Then he makes his way up north. After going up north, then he's going to come back over to the west. And he's going to go south to the southernmost part of the territory of Israel. That's kind of the picture that you're seeing with specific geographic markers so that people would know where he went. But that's basically the picture. In a kind of counterclockwise way, think of a circle meeting. It's a rectangle. That's essentially what it looks like. And he's going throughout the land doing the census. It was a big deal, by the way. See how long it took? This wasn't a small undertaking. It was a big deal. It took nearly 10 months. And you could see the military dynamic to it when you look in verse 9, right? There were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. Ah, that's what they're looking for. This has military drafting dynamics to it. When you compare the number of the people counted here and in First Chronicles, they are different. But there are, some, many, there are some reasons and there are many possibilities for why that is. One possibility is that Chronicles either included individuals who were of fighting age but not military trained, so the number there is bigger than this. So in 2 Samuel you see those who drew the sword, they were valiant fighting men ready for war, but in Chronicles the number is bigger because maybe it included those who were not valiant fighting men, but they were still within the age to be drafted. There are possibilities like that. Maybe the number in Chronicles included the standing army of Israel. So there are good possibilities for that difference. Interestingly, the figure was not entered into the Chronicles of David. You see that in 1 Chronicles 27-24. Because part of what happened is, as Joab is going through the land, he doesn't count all of the people. He doesn't count Levi... But that makes sense because the priesthood was excluded, even when you look at the census in Numbers. But it doesn't count the people of Benjamin either. And it's interesting, when you look at Chronicles, we're told because the command of the king was abhorrent to him. So he didn't even complete the census. So maybe the numbers in Chronicles estimate for the tribe of Benjamin, let's say. So that's a little bit of what you have going on there, but it leads to this. It brings us to the hinge of the narrative and where we will end today before we enter into what I think is a Just a fitting, climactic conclusion to this book. Um, In verse 10 we read, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, or to Yahweh, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, O Yahweh, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Here is where the next part of the story is about to begin. Now, unlike David's sin with Bathsheba, if you remember his sin with Bathsheba, he did not confess it. 
until God in His grace, if you will, hunted him down. God is the one who sent Nathan the prophet, told him a parable, and applied the parable saying, you are the man. Then David says, I have sinned. But here, although it's about ten months later, so it still took a while for him to have this conviction, here though, we don't see the prophet Gad come to him. Gad's going to come after, the next morning. But David's heart condemned him. An interesting word in the Hebrew here for condemned. It's used a lot in First and Second Samuel. It's a word for smite or strike. His heart struck him. He felt condemned. He knew he had done something wrong. It smote him. He felt the guilt of what he had done. It's the kind of thing that happened to Peter's hearers on the day of Pentecost when the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached and they were pierced in their hearts. They knew when they heard Peter preaching about Jesus, they were pierced. They're like, I'm not right with God. I have sinned before a holy God. More about that in a moment as we get ready to close for today. Notice though what David did. His heart smote him, and he's an example, I think, to believers in this moment. From what we read in the text, if you just kind of feel the flow of the text, his heart smote him, and what is the next thing he does? He confesses his sin to God. I have sinned. Whereas earlier, I think if you look in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan approaches him, he says, I have sinned. Here he says, I have sinned greatly. He knows he's done wrong. I've sinned greatly in what I've done. He even goes on, he says, for I have done very foolishly. This is the hinge. But then he also asks God to take away his sin. He asks Yahweh, take away the iniquity or the sin of your servant, for I have done foolishly. This, I think, has great instruction for those here today, both inside and outside of Christ. If you are outside of Christ, meaning if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, if you are not at a point where you have come to trust Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God, have you come to the point where David came to in this text? Where he says, I have sinned greatly. I have done foolishly. Have you seen that you're lying and you're lusting? That you're coveting and that you're complaining your idolatry and your indifference, your anger and your selfish ambition are all great sins in the sight of God. They all warrant, they deserve the righteous, holy wrath of the God of the universe. I would encourage you, if you are outside of Christ, to please, by the grace of God, learn from David's confession and employ his words. You can employ them in your heart right now. You can even say them out loud. You can whisper them as it were to the Lord. You could say, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. You know what you've done. You know the idolatry. You know the apathy. You know the lying. You know the lusting. You know the fornication. You know the witchcraft. You know the things that you have done. And I would plead with you. Use David's words. Employ his language. I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But I would also encourage you. I'd plead with you. I'd essentially beg you. Don't stop there. Don't stop there. Judas said words like that. Judas said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But he didn't look to Christ. And he didn't pray as David prayed. Lord, take away the iniquity of my servant, for I have done foolishly. I encourage you, if you've never come to Christ, ask Him to take away your sin. The prescription has already been filled. Receive by the grace of God the gift that Jesus Christ is. 
The scripture says Jesus appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26. 1 John chapter, five, uh, chapter 3 verse 5 says, He was manifested to take away our sins and in Him there is no sin. So believe that the sinless Son of God bore your wrath upon the cross. That He was manifested to take away our sins. Do, even as Paul was told by Ananias, call on the name of the Lord and your sins will be washed away. To borrow language from Acts 22.16. So I encourage you, if you haven't, look unto the sinless Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of God. Put no confidence in your works and see Jesus' death and resurrection is the only way in which the God of heaven and earth has appointed to justly take away your sin, seeing as it was paid for by another. And for the Christian, I just want to close by applying this. When was the last time you confessed your sin unto God? Not your sinfulness. Right? I think it's a lot easier to confess our sinfulness in a general way. I lament my fallen frame. When's the last time you confessed specific sins to God? I presume that there are some Christians that are unaware of sins to confess. If that's you, like, I don't even know what I would confess. I'd like to think that you were right <laughs> and that such lives are spotless, but 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. Fallen sinful frames produce sin. Sinful thoughts, sinful actions. I just want to say, because I think sometimes people don't confess sins because they fear it's going to ruin their cred with other Christians. You know? My credibility. That's, that's credibility. Um, I think that can happen. Well, let me tell you. I'm just going to do some pastoral counseling for you. Uh, the two people that I think think that I am the most godly person that they know are the people who hear me confess sins the most. My wife and my son. Thea's there too, but I don't know if she's old enough to understand. But when we do um, devotions at night together, one of the things, and I'm not trying to just do this to set an example, I'm doing it because it's real. I've, I personally believe that the longer you walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more you're going to be, the more you're going to be aware of your sinfulness. Yes, by God's grace, you'll have different struggles. I, I think that's part of the nature of a healthy Christian walk, that there are some battles that you had younger in, when you were younger in your walk, and then by God's grace, you overcome those, and then maybe you still got to deal with incursions here or there or whatever, but you're going to have new battles. And I just want to encourage you, confess your sins. Don't think it's going to ruin your credibility. It could ruin your credibility if people see you confessing it, but they don't really see you pursuing to kill it. That's the problem where you think the badge is simply found in the confession, not in the pursuit of mortification, which means pursuing to kill the sin. But if the confession is joined with the genuine pursuit of killing that sin by staying away from that sin and so on, I just want to encourage you. I think it's a godly thing. I think it's a right thing. You want to be able to excrete those kind of things. You don't want them staying in your system. You want to be able to sweat them out, as it were, when you're in prayer. Now, I'm not saying you always have to do it in front of people, but I think a lot of times people don't do it in front of people because they're scared what people are going to perceive. And, of course, use wisdom with the people that you're around, right? Of course, there's those dynamics. But it's important to confess your sins. David sets a great example here. His heart, his heart condemned him. Next thing we see, he's quickly confessing his sins to God. And I want you to know that the continuing confession of sin to God is a witness to the genuine salvation that you have as a believer and the reality that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin.
And with that, we reach the hinge. Next week, we see the plague come and we see where the plague ends. I think it's a fitting climactic conclusion to the book of 2 Samuel. Alongside of David's last words, which you might remember me telling you was essentially, according to the Hebrew structure, that was the thrust. That was where the, um, the climax was to be found. But I think what we're going to see next week is indeed climactic as well. And a fitting transition into the book of 1 Kings. But let us pray as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way in which you minister to your people. You wash us afresh. You renew our minds, Lord, through the hearing of your word. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you might find us bowing the knee to your sovereignty, trusting your sovereign, sinless superintending of all things, that you might find us, Heavenly Father, being careful to guard against um, the proclivities of the flesh or the temptations of the enemy, that you might find us by your grace heeding godly counsel, wise rebukes, Lord, or being those who would give gentle rebukes and wise counsel to others, and that you might find us by your grace, Lord, being those who confess our sins to you, and that, Father, perhaps by your grace today, there will be some some who will confess for the first time, I have sinned greatly, and they will see your great provision for the forgiveness of sins in your Son and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, may it be the One who appeared so that our sins might be put away by the offering of Himself. Thank You for the forthcoming celebration of that that we have in the Lord's table. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.